Good morning, everybody. It's tough to follow kids, man. It's not fair. Sheesh. So I'm just going to start singing. This is what I got to do to get some attention around here. Happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. My name is Mark. I am one of the pastors here at the Rock Community Church. Um, my title actually is the senior pastor, but the leadership told me it's because of my age, not because of my credentials. <laughs> Whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. A um, couple things I want to uh, point our attention to. The first thing is we had a team of people um, leave late Thursday night, uh, 11, and they're uh, for Honduras. They left late Thursday night, early Friday morning. They got to Tegucigalpa, Honduras on Friday and took a picture when they got there. And they're already just getting after it and doing the Lord's work in Honduras. And many of you have prayed. Please keep praying for them as they continue to work um, what God's doing there in Honduras and, and just giving of their time and, and the resources. And so just keep praying for them. They're doing all kinds of things. They're building some homes. And if if you know Mickey, who's there, Mickey will, by the time he leaves, he will probably have built an apartment complex. <laughs> and they're like, that's way too much housing. But uh, that's just the way Mickey's wired. He told his wife, Sherry, who told my wife, he says, I've never done construction with a bunch of girls. <laughs> he said, but they're doing great. Uh, the second thing is, a week from today, we have a church plant in Heath, Texas. Go ahead and throw that next slide up. And that's the, it's a, a, a drawing or a markup, a markup of... Um, Linda Lyon Elementary School, and that's where our church plant in Heath, Texas, will be having their first service a week from today. Yeah. And, and God is just showing them so much favor. You know, they did the walkthrough a couple weeks ago before they signed the contracts and all that, and, and, and it's, it's a brand new school. And it's got some incredible amenities, but, you know, not everything is available. And so all the things that they had hoped would be available um, to pull off the services the Lord uh, provided. And so God is just uh, working in an amazing way. So thank you for your prayers. Keep praying. That's a, that's a, a big day next week. I'm going to be flying out on Thursday. Um, they won't tell me what they're going to have me do during the service um, in, in, in leading up to it, but there's just a lot of um, heavy lifting that needs to be done. And I'm just like, do with me whatever you want. I'm just there to serve. So I'm just excited to be there and, and see what God's going to do. And just as a reminder, we're, um, we're doing five monthly services. We'll do a service in April, a service in May, June, July, and August. And then September 9 will be our grand opening where we'll start meeting every Sunday starting in September 9 after that. So just a lot of things that need to build up and uh, just so excited. All right. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go on a journey. We're going to end up in a really incredible place, but we're going to take a couple detours first, and then we're going to pull that all together, okay? So if you've got a seatbelt, you might want to strap up. Let me open with this quote. Great way to get our minds thinking. When someone claims to be your God, you really only have two choices. You can reject the claim, or you can accept it. That's it. Turn with me to John chapter 20. We use the NASB, New American Standard Bible. If you're on a, on a phone, look for the NASB, New American Standard Bible. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. There's a New American Standard Bible there. If you don't have one, please feel free to take it home. They are free. So John chapter 20. It's in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. 
John chapter 20. We're going to read this as a way of just getting our, our morning started and getting grounded, and then we're going to pray after we read John chapter 20. Thank you for being here. Thank you for prioritizing the Lord on this special day. <clears throat> John 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, which is John himself, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter and the other disciple, they went forth and they were going to the tomb and they were running together. And the other disciple, which is John, which is funny to me, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he, John, saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter, he also came, right, comes in behind him and following him and he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping and so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I, I don't know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know it was him. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And so Mary came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, what he still says to us, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And then there's Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I understand, Thomas. That makes sense to me on some level. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was now with them. And Jesus came the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you a third time. 
And then he says to Thomas, how loving of our Lord to do this. He says, reach here with your finger. See my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. So then Jesus says back to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you and that's me. We're blessed. Verse 30, therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not even written in this book, but what has been written, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life in his name. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are grateful for what this weekend, what this day represents. But Lord, we get to live by the representation of this day every day hereafter because we are free in Christ and through Christ and we have a right relationship with the Almighty God because of what Christ did on the cross. And for that, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Again, happy Easter. It's really good to see you guys. Warren Wearsby says this about the Gospel of John. He says, if the Gospel of John were an ordinary biography, there would be no chapter 20. He says, I'm an incurable reader of biographies, and I notice that almost all of them conclude with the death and burial of the subject. I have yet to read one that describes the subject's resurrection from the dead. Amen? So here's our, here's our first detour. I'm going to read you some things from an article from April 1st, exactly three years ago, 2015. April 1st, but it's no joke. This is a real article. From Barna Research Group. And the article is, What Do Americans Believe About Jesus? Five Popular Beliefs. The article starts off this way. It says, On Sunday, March 29, just a couple days prior to when this was written, National Geographic Channel premiered its adaptation of Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus to 3.7 million viewers, the channel's biggest audience in history. CNN's Finding Jesus miniseries also sustained impressive viewership. Google searches of Jesus climbed 53% the week of Easter. Here are five popular American perceptions. The first one, the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Jesus Christ has made a cameo in hundreds of pop culture places, from the Da Vinci Code to South Park. Although the character of Jesus has certainly been fictionalized, satirized, and mythologized over the centuries, the vast majority of Americans, 92%, still maintain that Jesus was an actual person who actually lived. It's really a no-brainer. If you can't accept the fact that Jesus was a real person who really lived, you're just that's, just, that's just silly, honestly. The second perception is that younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was God. Most adults, almost 60%, believe that Jesus was God. 26% say he was only a religious or spiritual leader. The remaining 18% say they aren't sure whether Jesus was divine or not. The third perception is that Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. Roughly half Americans agree that while on earth, Jesus was human and committed sins like other people. The other half disagree and believe Jesus was sinless. The fourth perception is that most Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That's what most Americans say. 
on the whole, <laughs> America is still committed to Jesus. Making a personal commitment to Jesus is a step that more than 60% say that they have taken. And that this commitment that they've taken is still important to them in their daily living. Women are more likely than men to have made a personal commitment to Jesus, 70% compared to 56%. It's why often in churches you see more women than you do men. White Americans are, least, are the least likely ethnic group to have committed to Jesus at 60%. 80% for blacks and 65% for non-white Americans. More, the more money people make, the less likely they are, ha they are to have committed to Jesus. Those making 100,000 or more, 53% have committed to Jesus. Between 50 and 100 grand, it goes up to 63%. If you make less than 50,000, it goes up to almost 70%. What's the point in all that? See, when, when things are going well, we just think we're, we're, we're fine all on our own, don't we? I got it all figured out. My bankroll's good. I'm good. I don't need God. And that's where we get this whole thing that Jesus is a crutch. Yes, he is. And you desperately need a crutch. Millennials are less likely than any other group to have made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important in their lives today. And here's what I want to say about that. Hear me, church. I wonder why that's the case. Did it just happen? Did it just happen that millennials are less likely to commit to Jesus? I wonder what we, the generation before them, what we have done to make Jesus unattractive. You understand what I'm saying? I wonder what we have done to de-emphasize the importance of Christ, the importance of the church, the importance of brotherhood and sisterhood, the importance of the Holy Spirit. What have we done to de-emphasize the importance of Jesus Christ in the lives of our children? I am the father of two millennials. One's 28, one's 25, and that I know their eyes are focused on Jesus. It's because my eyes have been focused on Jesus and my wife's eyes have been focused on Jesus and we have prioritized him. And so their eyes are focused on our Lord. Our fifth perception is that people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. Most adults who have made a commitment to Jesus also believe he is the way to heaven. Many believe, however, that they will go to heaven as a result of their good works. Who gets to define that? Broadly speaking, this is the most common perception among Americans who have never made a commitment to Jesus. It's also common among many self-identified Christians. Okay, so what does all this mean? There isn't much argument about whether Jesus actually was a historical person. There's really no argument at all. But nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. These findings demonstrate the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans. This study also shows the extent of Christian commitment throughout the nation. More than 150 million Americans say that they have professed faith in Jesus Christ. This impressive number then begs the question of how well this commitment is actually expressed. As much of our previous research shows, Americans' dedication to Jesus is, in most cases, a mile wide and an inch deep. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're an inch deep in your faith, in your trust in Jesus Christ. Much has been made about whether millennials will get more serious about church and faith as they age, but younger Americans are not as connected to Christ. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but many millennials are unfriending him. 
at a time when their lives are being shaped and their trajectory is set toward the future. Whereas Proverbs says, raise up your child in the ways of the Lord and when they get old, they will not depart from them. It's not the millennial's problem, it's our problem. That's our first detour. Here's our second detour. Greg Gilbert wrote this article about two months after that article. Greg Gilbert pastors a church in Kentucky, last I checked, and he's written some books. And his article is, Who Do You Think Jesus Is? He wrote this in June 2nd of 2015. He says this, he says, Maybe you've never given it much thought, and that's understandable. After all, we're talking about a man who was born in the first century into an obscure Jewish carpenter's family. He never held a political office. He never ruled a nation. He never commanded an army. He never met a Roman emperor. Instead, Jesus simply taught people about God and about spirituality. He read and explained the Jewish scriptures to Jewish people, and he did some out-of-the-ordinary things, did he not? Jesus also ran bitterly afoul of the authorities of his day, and he wound up being executed on a cross by one of Rome's many provincial governors, a kind of imperial middle manager for the people of real power. And all of this happened some 2,000 years ago. So why are we still talking about him today? Why is the person of Jesus Christ so inescapable? Surely we can agree, he goes on to say, that Jesus is a towering figure in world history. One respected historian put Jesus' influence like this. He says this. He says, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? That's a good question. The answer is probably not much. Jesus isn't just inescapable in some distant, historical kind of way. He's also inescapable in a very close way. All of us probably have acquaintances who would say that they are Christians, go to church regularly, sing songs about Jesus, say they have a relationship with him, and declare that their lives are organized around him. Our cities are dotted with various church buildings, with thriving communities of Christians who gather there weekly, much like we're doing now. Everywhere you look, if you're paying attention, you'll see reminders of this one particular man who lived about 2,000 years ago. And so again, it presses the question, who is he? Very few people doubt his existence anymore. The basic facts of his life are well agreed upon, but there's considerable disagreement about the significance of his life and death. Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Something entirely different? Was he the son of God? Or just an unusually gifted man? And for that matter, who did he think he was? His death at the hands of the Romans, was, was that part of the plan? Or did he just get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time? And then the biggest question of all, after he was executed, did Jesus stay dead like the rest of us do and the rest of us will, or did he not stay dead? You see, ordinary people don't say the sort of things that Jesus said. He said, God and I are one. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he says. He says, no one comes to God except through me. Those aren't merely ethical teachings for life. Those are claims, bold claims that Jesus made. Of course, you may reject what he says. But wouldn't it make sense not to do that too quickly? 
Wouldn't it make sense to get to know him a bit before you completely toss off what he says about you and about God and about himself? Let me make a bold request, he writes. Give Jesus a chance. You may realize that there are actually some very good reasons for believing what he said about himself and about God and about you. So who is Jesus From the moments the shepherds showed up claiming that angels told them about his birth to the day that he amazed his disciples by calming the sea to the moment the sun stopped shining the day that he died, everyone, everyone was always left asking, who is this man? You may know much and you may know little about Jesus Christ. But as you explore his life, I hope you'll see what amazes people about him and come away with a better understanding of why so many people say, this is the man that I'm trusting in my eternity with. I hope you take Jesus' claim seriously. When someone claims to be your God, you really only have two choices, right? You can reject the claim or you can accept it. What you can't do, at least for very long, is suspend your judgment to see just how things might play out. Jesus claims some amazing things about himself and about you. Like it or not, that has radical implications for your life. So I hope you think hard about Jesus. Understand his claims and their implications more clearly and come to a firm answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's the most important question you will ever have to consider in your life. That was our second detour. Turn to the book of Colossians. Pastor Doug on Good Friday preached or spoke from Colossians uh, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. You have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. We're going to read these ten verses, and then we're going to talk about them. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Verse 13. If you're in the NASB, what, what's the heading right over verse 13? What does it say? Yeah, the incomparable or the incomparable, the incomparable Christ. Hey, look, there is nobody like Jesus. Never has been, never will be. He's incomparable. And that's what Paul wants us to hear. Verse 13, for he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain, the dominion, the authority of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet he 
has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death so that he can present you, oh man, before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what Jesus has done for us. It's who he is and it's what he does. Let me give you another angle about this Jesus guy. It's just the common sense angle because I'm, not a, I'm, I'm a simple man. I am not a smart guy. I, I, and I'm not, it's just not, right? And so common sense works for me. This is common sense for me. It must, must, must go without saying that matters of eternal life with God or eternal life without God are supremely important. Yes? That's just common sense. Matters of eternal life with Him or eternal life away from Him are important. As such, what caring, what loving, what kind of a just God would make that a complicated endeavor to figure out? Common sense, right? If it's important, what kind of a loving, caring, and just God would make that complicated to figure out? Who do you think makes it complicated? Him or us? B, us, right? Look, if the Almighty God is incapable of sending Jesus in the flesh to die for our sins, if he's incapable of raising him from the dead, if he's incapable of giving us his word and the Holy Spirit and the church, then he's not a God worth serving or even worth worrying about. He's not. Jesus Christ answers the most important question in the history of mankind. And the question is this, that he answers, which way is the true way to God? Jesus answers that question. Amen? Here's our outline for our verses this morning. We have two things, who he is and what he does. Who you are and what you do go hand in hand. You can't say what you do is separate from who you are. Jesus does what he does because he is who he is. You do what you do because you are who you are. Amen? We're going to start with the second one first because I just like to go out of order. We're going to do number two first. What he does. What does he do? Jesus does three things for us. Did you know that? In these verses, 13, 14, 21, 22, he rescues us, he redeems us, and he reconciles us. That's what Jesus does for us. He rescues us, he redeems us, and he reconciles us. Check this out. Look at verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1. The first thing is he rescues us. Verse 13, for he rescued us from darkness, from the dominion, the power of darkness, and he transferred us. It's like, oh, Jesus, I'm putting in for a transfer. He's like, yeah, I do that. I do that for you. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That rescue means he, we needed to be delivered. We needed to be set free from sin. Hey, unless you're perfect, you need to deliver from sin. If you've never sinned, you need to deliver from sin. And that's what Jesus does. He delivers us. He sets us free. In these verses, what they're telling us this is we have in life, you have two options. That's it. You have two options. You can be under the dominion or authority of darkness. That's what it says. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's one option. Or you can be under the dominion and the authority of Jesus. You're going to be under some kind of an authority. The authority and dominion of darkness or the authority and dominion of Jesus Christ who is light. Because that's what Jesus said about himself in John 8, 12. Look what he says in John 8, 12. He says, I am, not a light, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you choose. You're going to walk in darkness or you're going to walk with Jesus. Well, I don't want to walk with Jesus. Then you're choosing to walk in darkness. That's a choice that we have to make. 
See, God brings us out of stuff so he can bring us into stuff. He brings us out of darkness to bring us into the light. And that's what that verse tells us. The second thing is that he redeems us. That's the second thing that he does. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means ransom, a buying back, to release a prisoner by payment of a ransom. Somebody has to do that for you. There's a price to be paid for sin, which we cannot pay because it requires complete holiness, which we cannot accomplish. And only Christ was able to pay that price and pay that debt. And so he forgives us our debt, just like the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debt as we forgive those who have debts against us. And forgiveness, the word forgiveness there in verse 14 really means to cancel a debt. It's not just words, I forgive you. It means to cancel the debt. And the third thing we talked about is that he reconciles us, and that's in verses 21 and 22. He reconciles us. That means he restores us. When he reconciles us, that means things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We have to be restored into a relationship with him, and that's only done through Jesus Christ. We cannot be restored to God outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Although you were alienated and hostile in mind... Engaged in evil deeds, yet he has reconciled you in his body through death in order to present you holy and blameless. See, it's the restoration of a previous harmonious relationship. Things were harmonious until sin entered, and then things were not harmonious. The Lord takes the initiative in this endeavor. See, there's, there's some words in verse 21 and 22. You were, yet he. You were, yet he. The Lord takes the initiative on your behalf. Check out these words. You were, verse 21. And although you were, look at verse 22, yet he. Although you were, yet he. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, he loves you, yet he reconciled you. He did that. You didn't do that. He did that. He has reconciled you in his body by dying on a cross so that you and I can be blameless before the Almighty God. You were, yet he. Mm. So that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. Let's talk about who Jesus is. And that's the remaining verses. Those are those middle verses, verses 15 through 20. Jesus does what he does, what we just talked about. He rescues us, redeems us, and reconciles us. He does what he does because he is who he is. Who is he? Verses 15 through 20 tell us who he is. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, he is. This is who he is. He Right? He does what he does because he is who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing it says in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. That word image means exact representation and exact manifestation of God. It's not that he's similar to, it means the exact representation. It means that Jesus is God. It also says in verse 15 what he is. He is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn of all creation. That's the second thing that he is. He is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn means of first importance, of first rank, that there's no more important person in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. That's what it means, firstborn. It means of first importance. It means of first rank. 
Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. Right? In the heavens and the earth, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So the third thing is, is that he created all things. And so since Christ created all things, he is uncreated. Verse 17 tells us two things. Verse 17 says he is before all things and he holds all things together. He is before all things and he holds everything together. What does verse 18 say? Verse 18 says that he's the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. That word head, in Greek, the usage meant source or origin as well as leader and ruler. Jesus Christ is the source and the origin of the church. Any church outside of Jesus Christ as its origin, as its source, is not a church that is part of, of, the, of the Almighty. If Jesus Christ is the source and the origin, as well as the leader and the ruler of the church, then anything outside of Christ is not part of the Lord's work. He's the head of the body, the church. The seventh thing it says in verse 18 is that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, right? So he's the head of the body of the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Beginning is translated originer. Everything originates with Jesus Christ. And of course, firstborn means of first importance or first rank. So what verse 18 is telling us is that without his resurrection, right? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Without his resurrection, there can be no resurrection or eternal life for anybody else. The eighth thing that these verses show us is that he possesses the fullness of God. And we can see that in verse 19. 19 says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ. What does fullness mean? Fullness meant the sum total of all the divine power and attributes of God are found in Jesus Christ. Dwell means, right, it says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of the deity of God to dwell in Jesus. It doesn't mean temporarily. That word means to reside permanently. It's who he was, who he is, and who he always will be. And the ninth thing about who he is is in verse 20. He reconciled us to himself, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. See, other scriptures say that Christ reconciles us to who? To God. But here, Paul says that he reconciles us to himself. Well, which one is it? It's both. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? And that can only be done. That reconciliation, as verse 20 shows us, is only done through the blood of his cross through him. Okay? So here's the big takeaway. If you Google, however you want to type it up, prominent people, a bunch of different lists are going to come up. I chose a list. I just chose a list. And there was, there was 100. This one had 100 prominent people. I don't know the rhyme or reason. I'm just going to give you the top 10. Don't be a hater. Seriously, this is crazy. Number one, and this is, this is this one list of, this, this is chosen mainly, mainly from 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. Number one, prominent people. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe was number one. Go Maryland. Number two, Abraham Lincoln. 
Like, he's got to be disappointed he's number two behind Maryland, right? He's like, man, if I'd have just tried a little harder. Man, I finished second to Maryland? Really? Number three, Mother Teresa. Number four, John F. Kennedy. Number five, Martin Luther King. Number six, Nelson Mandela. Number seven, Queen Elizabeth II. I always just thought that was a boat. <laughs> Turns out it's a person. Just kidding. There's actually a cruise ship called the QE2, right? You guys know that? Okay. So, little. Number eight, Winston Churchill. Number nine, and I'm going to ask you to refrain from any, any comment. Donald Trump. Keep your mouth shut. It just seems to elicit different responses from people. Number nine, Donald Trump. Number 10, Bill Gates. And the list went on. Colossians 1 that we're in right now, Colossians 1, verse 18, tells us, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Colossians 1, verse 18, tells us why Jesus Christ does not belong on this list. Did you know that? Colossians 1.18 tells us why Jesus Christ does not belong on this list. Let's look at Colossians 1.18, because I'm sure you're curious. He, Jesus Christ, is head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then there's those words, so that. So that is like part of a math problem. So that means equal. So that, equal sign. So that. He himself will come to have first place in everything. He doesn't belong on a list of prominent people. Jesus Christ does not belong on a list of prominent people. That word in Greek in first place means something more. It means preeminent. It means supremacy. The ESV puts it this way. It says, so that in everything he might be preeminent. The NIV says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. I'm tired of Jesus Christ being prominent in people's lives. I hope you're tired of Jesus Christ being prominent in your life. There's no place for Jesus Christ to be prominent. He's not a prominent person. He's a preeminent person. And that's what he deserves. That's how God set him up to be. To be preeminent in your life and in my life. Quit making Jesus a prominent person. Take him off of your prominent list. He's not prominent. He is preeminent. And no other way shall we look at him as other than a preeminent person. The preeminent person, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who Jesus Christ is. Stop giving him prominence and give him preeminence for who he is and what he does. Stop it. Amen? That's who Jesus is, church. Jesus himself said this in John 14, 6. He said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody gets to God but through me. Please stop making Jesus prominent. Make him preeminent in your life now and forevermore. Please, your lives depend on it. The lives of people around you that you know and love depend on it. May we give him the preeminence that God has given him. If God's given him preeminence, oh, we must as well. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a chance right now to make Jesus preeminent in your life. If you've made him prominent for many, many years, it's time to stop making him prominent and make him preeminent and accept him for who he is as the King of kings and Lord of lords who died for your sins on a cross and rose on the third day so that you can have eternal life with him. And so we're going to bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes 
and we're going to pray. And while we're praying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a stand for Jesus. He put himself on a cross for you. Will you just simply rise out of your seat for him and stand and take a stand for Jesus this morning? Quit making him prominent. Give him what is his, the preeminence in your life. Let's pray. Everybody, bow your heads and close your eyes. Almighty God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us that we've made you prominent when you are preeminent. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you died for us. And so, Lord, we, if we haven't yet, we commit our lives to you. And so if that's you, and you're going to make Jesus preeminent in your life, and you're, you're tired of making him prominent, but you're going to make him preeminent, will you take a stand right now in your seat? Just stand where you're at. Take a stand for Jesus and say, I'm going to stand for Jesus. I'm going to stand for Jesus. Keep standing, people. Keep standing. Stand for Jesus. Stand for Jesus. Make him preeminent in your life. Give your lives to Jesus. Quit making him prominent, please, and make him preeminent. Please be seated. Almighty God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for the cross. May we never lose sight. As the years go by, may the, may the depth of that message grow. May it never diminish. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Hey, look, before this last song gets sung, if you gave your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, next Sunday there's a baptism class. Go to the baptism class. Get baptized the following Sunday on the 15th. Okay? Amen. Thank you.